We've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians this year. And so this week and next, we're going to take a two-week um, detour. I hate to use the word detour when you're talking about preaching God's word, but um, we're going to redirect to Titus chapter 3 for this week and next in light of all that's going on in our culture. So appreciate Pastor Mike's selection of the hymns this morning because especially those last two um, certainly uh, have significant um, purpose in a large part of the context that we're going to be uh, dealing with here together over the next couple weeks. I want you to be in prayer if you would. I know I normally don't do this, but I have a really special friend in the ministry. His name is Pastor Craig Griffith. Years ago, um, his father came here and did a, a family Bible conference for us. His name was Dr. E. Allen Griffith. And uh, Craig Griffith is my age. And uh, Craig Griffith, about uh, a little over a month ago, was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. Uh, it's the same cancer that they found that my mom had. It's a, my mom had two cancers, but the one that actually took her life was, a, an, was an adolescent cancer. It's called rhabdomyosarcoma. And um, uh, Craig's not doing well at all. Um, he's got a wonderful ministry in Pennsylvania. And uh, his brothers are also in the ministry. So just a wonderful, uh, sweet family. Um, uh, you can find Craig on Facebook. He's, with uh, much strength as he can muster, he's figuring out a way to put posts on Facebook to keep people aware. It's a tremendous gospel light. Um, in the medical facilities where he's getting his treatment. And I know you don't know him, but I would ask you to pray for him as my friend, as our friend in Christ, as a, as a pastor who's hurting. You know what, folks? There's a lot of pastors hurting across the country, not through physical illness, okay? Um, um, a lot of pastors who are hurting for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so let's just pray for the, the state of the church that preaches the gospel of Christ in our country, uh, because it's in peril in many places. And uh, so let's, let's be in prayer for those folks. I had a wonderful opportunity to have a face-to-face -face con uh, conversation with our congressman here in Lake County, U.S. Congressman Dave Joyce on Friday. And I would pray, we have a subsequent conversation coming up, um, God willing, in the next week or so. And I've asked him to lend us his ear on how he can help churches in Lake County uh, best move forward and, uh, in a safe manner, but in an intentional manner uh, in our county. I said, uh, I can speak for the group of pastors that I'm uh, coordinating with, and I'm not coordinating with all of them in our county, but a handful of them for sure. And I'd like to share with you what we're going through, what we're struggling with, and he was, um, he was more than willing to, to do that. So be in prayer for, uh, for that conversation as well. As a matter of fact, when we were meeting and talking, uh, he said, I remember you. He said, you were in Washington, D.C. with your family, and you brought your whole family up to my office in the Capitol, and you prayed with me. I said, yeah, you got an incredible memory. That's really, really cool. Uh, people remember that. So whether they're here locally or whether you're in D.C. and you can go find your local or state representatives or federal representatives and go uh, pray with them. I think that's First Timothy too. I think that's a biblical thing to do uh, for Christ's sake. 
So anyways, be praying about that conversation as well. I'd like to reread our context this morning in Titus chapter 3. Reread it because I read it last week as part of our scripture reading. And then we're going to go to the 50,000 foot view, uh, give you a theological, somewhat philosophical overview of this third pastoral epistle that Paul wrote to Titus who pastored at Crete, on the island of Crete. And then uh, we're going to spend this week and next week uh, looking at this first section of Titus chapter 3, and I uh, trust it's helpful to you uh, along the way. All right, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We also... For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, he would be made heirs, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God would be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So here's the proposition I'd like to give to you for this week and for next as we study these verses together. Grace, the grace of God, develops God's people to live counterculturally among all people. God's grace develops his people to live counterculturally among all people. Three times now, as we back up now from this context and go to the 50,000-foot overview of these three chapters of Titus, three times there's a mention of the incarnation of Christ, and it dots the pages of these three chapters that Paul wrote to Titus in A.D. 63. Look with me, if you will, the first four verses of chapter 1. Here's the first mention of what Paul um, writes to Timothy as to God becoming man, Jesus being born. Right? Three times Titus defines, uh, or as Titus is written to by Paul here, um, the, the explanation of the first advent of Christ. Paul, a bondservant of God, verse 1 of chapter 1, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, here it is, 
but at the proper time manifested even his word. Even his word. And the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. It goes on to say to Titus, my true child in a common faith. That word true, that phrase true child probably means that Paul led Titus to Christ personally uh, as a younger man. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. So uh, there you have it right there. Verse 3. Sounds a lot like Galatians 4, doesn't it? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born. God manifested his son. Go over with me to chapter 2 for the second time that the incarnation of Christ is mentioned here in the book of Titus, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There it is. The grace of God, Jesus, is the grace of God. He is explicitly the attribute, he is completely the attribute of God's grace in human flesh. The grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing, itself, bringing them salvation. And when that grace is received, it does something. It changes the way you live, right? We always say here, you don't have a gospel unless you have a changed life. Right? We intellectually, we hear it audibly, we understand it intellectually, it may move us emotionally, but until it changes us volitionally, until we surrender our will to God, our Savior, that's when grace changes us to live like what's described here, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age as we're a hopeful people too, right? There's that participle there that's so important, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. On your own time this week, just go back and underline how many times God is called Savior. Right? Just enjoy how Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about a triune God to this young pastor to give him confidence to step out and to just do the right thing by God's grace. But these become a hopeful people that are, that are transformed by God's grace spiritually and then practically. Uh, certainly those people that live that way become a hopeful people. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Three specific times in three chapters, Paul tells this young pastor to speak up and to be bold about it because you're being bold about what omnipotence has done. Not what you can do to change people, but to remind people on how God has already changed them in Christ. Speak up. Remind them, rebu rebuke, reprove, exhort, very similar to the wording of 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he writes to that young pastor in that pastoral epistle as he shepherds the saints in Ephesus and do those things with all long-suffering and with doctrine, right? So that's the second mention of the incarnation of Christ. The third one is in our context that we're going to be thoroughly looking at next week. 
You see in verse 4 of chapter 3 that we've already read this morning, but when the kindness of God our Savior, there's that combination of names again, God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Very, very um, memorable verses for all of us who understand that um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? That, that verse and Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are always juxtaposed in my mind that we're not saved by our own good works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by the grace of God, and, and Paul tells Titus here, by the mercy of God, right? And certainly, without forgiveness, who could stand? <laughs> without the forgiveness that grace and mercy bring, who could stand? So Christ was manifested, and he is God our Savior. The grace of God appeared, and it, or he, in Christ, becomes our divine instructor in how to live. And the kindness of God has appeared for the purpose of salvation. So coupled with these mentions of the first advent of Christ in each of the chapters of Titus is the development of Christian character in those who have given their lives to Christ. We see that following the first mention of the incarnation of Christ in chapter 1, what do we see in chapter 1 and verse 5? He says here, if you'll read it with me, for this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you that you would set in order what remains. This is a church that was a strong church. Apparently, this wasn't just one church. This was multiple towns on the island of Crete that had multiple pastors that needed to be appointed. And those pastors needed to mirror the character of God and the way they led their flocks. So we have here in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, one of two texts in the New Testament, the other one's 1 Timothy chapter 3, that detail for us this list of character qualities that pastors are supposed to exude among their people and in their communities. Christ appeared to change character. And really, no church can exist well unless the character of the shepherds is the character of God. Right? So he sends Titus, said, look, this, this church, these churches are really existing on their last thread of existence. I'm sending you there, knowing you well, knowing your character, Titus, well, to find men that fit these qualities in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Find them and appoint them over these churches because they're weak. And they're weak in character from the top down. You see, because people become like their leaders. Just like children become like their parents. Just like students become like their professors given enough time. And just like countries become like their presidents given enough time. Right? It's just uh, an axiom of God's created order. Right? Those who are in authority, they ask those underneath them to submit and to follow them, but if those in authority who ask people to submit and follow them have poor character, 
then those underneath them will probably exude the same given enough time. And that was what's happening here, even on a local church level in Crete. What happens in chapter 2 after this first mention of the incarnation of Christ? Remember he said Christ came to change character. He does so in spiritual leaders, but then in verses 1 through 8, the character of the older men and older women in the church of Crete needed to be developed or redeveloped, and they needed to become the example for the younger men and the younger women. It's very, very clear if you read those verses. So why don't we do that? But as for you, speak these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men, verse 1, verse 2, are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Now, apparently, there were these kinds of people in Crete's history, but from what I'm understanding in its church history in the past couple of weeks is that they had dissipated in their influence just as the pastors had dissipated. Paul's telling Titus here, really, it's never too late to do the right thing, so get in there, step it up, and assume that grace of God that regenerated them has still kept them there and saved even though they've backslid, so to speak. Get in there and let's fix it. And this is how these older men are to be. Older women, verse 3, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensitive, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Sounds like the older men, verse 2, right? In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The second time in eight verses, grace has called out God's people to be countercultural in the way they live and to actually be a living model of what God's grace is and how it operates in someone's life. The light of God's character needs to shine obviously and brightly in any culture that's destitute of God's grace. Okay? In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the grace of God, this is the third group of people that God's grace is to change or had changed in the past and needs to um, Straighten up, so to speak, I guess you could say, is the Christian employee-employer relationship. Bond slaves, you're to be subject to your own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So if you're an employee, you're not there to be argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, there it is again, in every respect. The second mention of the incarnation of Christ we've already read in chapter 2 and verse 11. And then we've already read the explanation of the development of Christian character among unbelief in our natural rhythms of life or even in outside the local church in our communities here in Lake County and beyond. 
those who are without Christ can look at your life as a distinct, holy, loving, compassionate difference. And again, within the immediate context of chapter 3 and verse 4, which was the third mention of the incarnation of Christ, we notice the context, and we've already read it, of chapter 3, and uh, those first 11 verses there. Again, the character development, all by the kindness and the grace of God as demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. Three other significant findings as you study this letter are clear as the grace of God and the kindness of God is demonstrated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as that they, it, develops our character. And these are the three things in addition to these obvious things we've already seen. God desires our character by his grace to be developed among the saved and the unsaved. Did you see that in these three mentions of the incarnation and how that grace, that kindness of God transformed us, right? Leaders in the church, elderly, younger people in the church. Then we have the, the, the workplace community and then we have the community itself. So God's grace develops our character within and without the church, our personal character. Secondly, he does this while compelling us to be active in good works, living the grace and kindness of God before the saved and the unsaved. And the quality, and this is important to grasp for us, right? And the quality of these good works stand in direct and practical contrast to the mentioned vices of chapter 1, which we'll read in a moment, that were obvious in the Cretan culture. Look with me at chapter 2 and verse 7 again. We've already read that, but here's a mention of good works and all these things to show yourself it would be an example of good deeds. We saw that again in verse 14 of chapter 2, remember? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's a third mention in chapter 3 and verse 8 that we've also read this morning. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And then look at verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. He does this while teaching us that the biblical principle of authority and submission is fundamentally a part of our domestic, ecclesiastical, and vocational cultures. So he expects us to have this grace develop us among the saved and the unsaved. We express within the church and without the church, how grace is developing us, even with practical hands and feet of good deeds. And we're going to explain exactly what good deeds means here as it stands in contrast to the sinful deeds of religious unsaved people and irreligious unsaved people in the community. But he says this grace also teaches us that there is something that's fundamentally true about God's created order. 
And what's fundamentally true about God's created order is the authority submission principle. And since God has made man in his image, and since there is an authority structure of submission within the Godhead itself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and as God created man in his image in a sinless state, he created an authority submission structure even in the Garden of Eden. Sin altered the living of that authority submission reality or culture, but it did not do away with it. It's fascinating to me. And again, between now and we get back together next week, go through all three chapters. We've read a handful of them already today. Go back and underline every time, right, someone's asked to lead or to submit to someone who's leading. A pretty good idea. That's why Pastor Mike picked the last two hymns that we sung. You're going to have quality elders in chapter 1. There are pastors who lead, and then there's sheep who follow the shepherds, right? You have senior saints in the local church that are to be taught and to be spirit-filled, and they're to be followed by who? The younger men and the younger women as to their character. Right? I've always told you folks, right? All you younger people only follow the older people unless they're grumpy. Right? They can say the right thing the wrong way. Don't follow those people. Follow the people that say the right thing the right way. You've got to be spirit-filled, compassionate, gracious people. But the younger people are to really submit and to follow and to begin to, to follow those older people so long as they're following Christ. That's Pauline language, right? How about the employer-employee? There's authority and submission. We read that this morning. And now we've got yet another one in our context that we'll thoroughly unpack next week, which is rulers and authorities. You are to be subject to them. And I want to let you know, I I really feel that most people in local churches anywhere in the world struggle with a submission... um, to authority because their pastors do. What I said, people who follow become like the people who lead them. Not just in our country, but across the world, pastors struggle to be submissive to the authorities in their lives. There's a lot of pastors that don't pay their taxes and they've got all the good reasons why they don't. A lot of pastors who don't and have not placed any authority over them in the local church in which they lead. And in their minds, that's a good idea. And it's a fatal idea. (laughs) There's a lot of pastors who don't follow Ephesians 5, even with their own wives, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And that's not a good idea if you don't do that either. 
So how can pastors expect their people to submit to any authority if they're not modeling what submission is themselves? And my goodness, what a year 2020's brought to test everybody's mettle when it comes to submitting to authority. <laughs> when many times the authority has no idea what to do or how to do it because they themselves have never experienced what the world's been experiencing this year. Right? But we still submit and This authority submission principle just peppers all three chapters. Because in Crete, they were no longer good at submitting to authority. And they had rationalized in their minds, if my pastors don't, then why should I? And my pastor's rationale, I'm going to go with that. If my pastor's rationale is I'm not going to submit to authority, my, and it's because the Roman dominance of the world at that point was also peppered with immoral, adulterous, murderous leaders, then why in the world should I submit to authority at work, at home, at church? You see, it's a watershed thing. It's a watershed thing. And yet we look at Philippians chapter 2, right? Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Why? He had a good authority structure that he enjoyed in heaven. Right? Good authority structures, what do they do? They express themselves gracefully in the context when the goodness and the kindness and the graciousness and the mercy of God appeared to man. When we own him as our Lord and Savior, we function among one another and in the world the same way, as best we can, right? Imperfectly, but as best we can with the same authority submission that the Godhead enjoys. It's hard for us, but we wrestle ourselves to do it as best we can. So again, pastors, elderly saints, younger saints, employees, employers, all of us in relationship to civil authorities, God the Spirit develops us by His grace unto good fellowship. Yes, part and parcel of the good works we do in our culture is to model good submission. This is what God's grace teaches us. And yes, it's better to obey God rather than man, but most of us are not there yet in our daily lives. There are many, uh, excuse me, there may be a, a saved spouse that must honor God and times when their unsaved spouse asks them not to. There may be a saved worker that's asked to do something illegal and has to say no to an unsaved boss, but truly, folks, all of us are under authority of some kind, and the most of our authorities are not asking us to violate our consciences against God, 
And all of them are allowing us to live good deeds among each other and our friends who need Christ. So that's a brief summary of the outline of the doctrinal and practical components of this pastoral epistle. Titus has his work cut out for him in Crete. Paul knows, since he led Titus to Christ, that Titus has developed this character himself, and he has the ability to model it before the Cretan believers. Paul knew it would take the standout, proven character of a guy like Titus to straighten out the structure and the infrastructure of the church in Crete in a way that, or at least begins to mirror the character of grace and kindness of God their Savior. I mean, this church existed, but it was tempted to be more like the world and eventually became more like the world than it did like their Christ. Go back to chapter 1 and let's look at verse 10. It talks about setting good leadership in place because there had been leadership that had infiltrated the ranks of the Cretan church that is described like this. It's kind of haunting to even think this. But in compare and contrast with godly leadership and its qualifications in verses 6 through 9, look at verse 10. For there are, these are leaders. I think the grammar is very fluid here. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's talking about Jewish people here that had invaded the church and made it to the ranks of leadership. Look how they're described. It says to Titus, they've got to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Sounds a lot like the invaders of Corinth, didn't it? Always in it for the paycheck, right? Verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars beasts, lazy gluttons, and basically what Paul's telling Titus is there's even a first among equals in this one particular house church in Crete that's standing up as a religious Pharisee saying, look at us compared to them. Remember how Christ rebuked the whited sepulchers of the Pharisees? You're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. These are pastors who are saying, you know what, it's us four and no more. We're the good guys. We're the clean guys. We're going to stay away from all those unclean folks out there because they'll make us filthy when inside they're wretches themselves. Right? This testimony is true. For this reason, what does he say here? Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Look at how he defi defi describes deeds here in contrast to the good deeds in the other four sections of the book that we that looked at this morning already. These folks can't do good deeds, right? Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's harsh language, isn't it? 
So here's Timothy, right? Here's, here's Paul telling Titus, go into this city, and by the way, your first job is to confront unsaved religious leaders who are described like this. Have at it, big fella. If I had a $100 bill for every pastor that's called since April that has found out that among their leadership and their church, these kinds of people existed, and the only thing that brought that to revelation in their life was how these men responded to the crises of our culture since March. I could go on a global cruise. It's amazing what trials brings out, isn't it? And even in leadership. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Right? That these things could split churches. Who'd have thought? If you'd have told us before the pandemic that, hey, sometime in 2020, all of you are going to have to wear these for a few weeks, but you're going to be okay, all of us would have said, okay. Who'd have thought that the colors blue and red could be so divisive? Who'd have thought? Right. Who'd have thought that the people of God would even take sides and be identified as yes or no or blue or red? Amen. Who'd have thought? Yeah. But guess what was happening in Crete? They were far down that river. Their raft, their, their raft tipped over early in that level five rapid. And they'd been floating down. Because why? They had forgotten how the grace of God had transformed them in Christ. They had forgotten that the grace and the kindness of God had appeared in Christ. It was merciful to their wretched souls. And they had forgotten that their exclusive identity was to be in Jesus Christ and not a color or a mask. Look at Ephesians 2. I would write next to these verses that describe the false leaders of the church of Crete at this time, and I would put Ephesians chapter 2 right next to those verses. Paul addressed this in the Ephesian church. Is there really a difference between Jew and Greek? Bar barbarian and Scythian? Have we not all, has not the wall been pulled down and have not we all been made one in Christ? Isn't he our exclusive ID? As Italian as Trivisano is on the front row, right? Little Italy born, raised, right? He can get along with, I don't know, what would you have called me growing up back then as a non-Italian don't tell me. Don't tell us. <laughs> right? That we can hug and we can get along. Where's, where's Donna Grenier? Are she in here this morning? We have, we have some Middle Eastern people that were enemies. <laughs> yeah. The Croatian Serbians. Did they hate each other in the motherland? Could it be quite an issue here? In some churches, it still is. They won't even sit in the same sections. But in Christ, that's our label. He's our label. 
He's our label. And as your pastor, I completely refuse to see any other label or recognize any other label except the label of Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory, among us, the hope of glory. Right? That's just what we do. We'll continue on uh, next week. I, I have another page and a half of notes that I didn't even get through that I intended to. That's not normally been my pattern, and you know that. <laughs> uh, I would be able to finish um, my notes. You, you have to see, when I, when I do my sermons, right, I, I know that if I, have, if I have four pages of notes that I'm right at 40 minutes. It's about 10 minutes a page. And I thought I could do this three and a half and 35, and it didn't work this morning. <laughs> Complete disclosure. All right, hope you still love me, because I still love you. <laughs> and we'll go from there. Folks, keep fighting well. You are doing a great job in relationship to authority and submission. You're doing a great job uh, domestically, ecclesiastically, vocationally, and in our community. Keep it up. You are not the church of Crete. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. You're growing. You're doing a wonderful job by God's grace. I'm only going over this text and then this immediate context because the noise on the outside is deafening more than any time in my 52 years existence. Right? And it's deafening because of the echo chamber even more of these things we didn't even have when I was growing up. When you have 70 million Americans just present on one social media platform among many other social media platforms, right? that noise will play with your mind, which influences your heart. Turn the noise off and listen to God in his word and keep focused on Christ. And I say that as your shepherd because I know you're doing a great job. I love my kids. I think my kids are generally doing an okay job walking with the Lord. But sometimes I get them along and I just grab their faces and I say, listen to me. You're doing a great job. Don't get distracted. <laughs> the Lord, his word, each other, and our mission. Keep focused as we try to model what grace has done in our hearts unto authority and submission. Okay? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. Thank you for preserving it as you've inspired it. That's a miracle. And thank you for the indwelling of the Spirit of God who is our tutor to help us apply it and walk it. And Lord, help us always to remember we don't have to do this alone. We can do this together with our disciples, disciplees, with our spiritual family here at Grace, with our leaders. Help us to continue to be that light that shines that men might see our good deeds and come to glorify our Father who's in heaven. Thank you for all you've done among us today and that you'll do through us this week by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is